Amen. I, I want to limit my recollections of experiences with Peter so that I don't um, become too verbose. But as I was hearing the other testimonies of, um, of experiences with him, I was reminded of the first time I ever um, shared the teaching duties with him. And just to show you his heart, it was at a camp, and um, I think we had 13-year-olds, and we shared, we co-taught the 13-year-olds, and um, it, was a, it was a great week, a very challenging week, because 13-year-olds are challenging no matter what, but he said, Mark, why don't we ask them to fill out prayer requests, and then we'll pray for them, and we did that. And that's his heart. I, I think he was 15 years old or 16. He was two years older than the students he taught. Um, but we gathered up those prayer requests. And because of, I think, his relatability, they shared their hearts. I mean, people were asking, the children were asking us to pray for their families, for a, a divorce situation or a difficulty like that. And then we divided them up and Six months later, we traded those again, and so he got half the class for, for six months, and I got half the class for the other six months. And I know that right now, um, his pattern is, he doesn't tell you this, and he doesn't broadcast it, but I think each of, each of the, attendants, uh, uh, the attendees of Lakeside would do well to make sure they're in the, in the uh, directory, because the directory is part of his prayer list. And that's his heart. That's the heart of the person that God has blessed us with. And I don't, I don't think he wants this morning, uh, I don't think Peter wants this morning to be about him. But it is about his Lord. And it is about the work that God has done and continues to do through Jesus Christ. Let's turn to our psalm for the day. Psalm 44, as we go through the, the uh, book of Psalms, um, we come to number 44, and it happens that today it's on page 440 in the Pew Bibles. I, I looked it up, I thought, well, I should at least be able to direct you 440 pages to get to the 44th Psalm, and it's right at the top of the page. But we'll read it in its entirety. Uh, it's my prayer that not many this morning are in the dark place that the psalmist was when he wrote this, but I also know that probably most or all of us at some time will be in that dark place. And we should be thankful that there is a psalm so candid and so raw with its expressions that we can relate to it. So we'll read together uh, Psalm 44. <clears throat> O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. 
You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in, places, in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. I'd like to just go through this and try to not, um, not use up too much of your time in in um, my understanding of things or in, in superfluous things. But just to walk through this together, there are five distinct themes, five stanzas to the psalm, and we'll just go through those, hopefully with some efficiency this morning. Um, but the psalmist begins on a very positive note. He says, we have heard about you. We know the stories about you. And this is, this is in response to the commands of God. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, as the voice of God, is telling the people, don't forget what God has done. Be careful to remember what God has done, how he led you out of Egypt, and how he brought you with a mighty hand. He defeated your foes to remember the Passover. We've celebrated what was the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples because in his mercy for us and our, our humanity and our, our frail memories, God commanded us, remember these things. It's important that we remember what God has done in our past. We are doing that now. The, the, the day is set aside in remembrance of 20 years of God's faithfulness through his servant. 
we're not here celebrating Peter specifically. We're celebrating the God that has sustained and used him for the benefit of his people. So in obedience to God's command, that's what the fathers had done. That's actually the best thing that fathers can do, that generations can do for their children, is to tell them about the work of the Lord in their life. And the truth is that all of our stories are really his story. They're really the story of how God has worked in our life. And that's what Israel's story was, the story of how God had worked in the history of Israel. And as they were um, about to cross the Jordan, the final address that Moses has to the people of God is in Deuteronomy. And he reminds them as they're about to cross the Jordan, he says, be careful that when you go over the Jordan and God gives you to possess the lands of your enemies that you didn't work for, to live in houses that you did not build, to get wealth that you did not earn. Beware, unless you think it's the strength of your arm that got you that. Unless you think it's your doing that did it. It is not you, it is God who has done that. Beware also when you go over and you possess the lands of the heathen that did not know God, that you think it is because of your righteousness that you possess the land. Because you're a stiff-necked people. You have rebelled against him at every turn. No, he did this in honor of his covenant with your fathers. He did this out of his mercy, out of his love. So that the Bible is telling us that he loves us because he loves us. That's the reason. And that's actually the reason the psalmist says at the end of the first stanza, he says, By your, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. We shouldn't be confused by that word delighted. It's not the delight of someone's achievements that we observe. It's not the delight of even uh, um, one of our kids doing well in sports and, oh, I'm, I'm delighted that he's such a great football player. It's more akin to the delight of a newborn child who has done nothing to earn our favor. They've done nothing. They, they're a newborn child. They delight us because they are ours because God has given them to us. And we delight in that. And even that is, is a corrupted image of it. But it is a delight as in he set his favor on us. He set his favor on his people, on the people of Israel. The second stanza begins with a much more personal statement. Not only have we heard about you, not only have our fathers told us about you because they obeyed the command of Moses to tell us all that you had done, and we've listened and we've heard and we believed it, but we have taken you as our God. And he says it even personally. It, it changes from the collective pronoun to an individual pronoun. He says, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. So not only their experience has been your faithfulness to them, but it is my experience. 
You have been faithful in my life. I have seen you at work. You have pushed down my foes. And for, for us, it's not a national uh, recollection of military conquests, but for each of us, there are, there are memories, and there ought to be memories of God's faithfulness in our life as well, in ways that he has overcome our sin or has led us through difficulty of either a health problem or a relational problem or a financial problem or whatever other difficulty it has been. He has led us through it. He has defeated our foes. He has defeated our arch enemy, our own sin, our own um, sentence of death, the curse that was on us because of our sin. And so we have that experience if we are his. In the, in the sense of military conquest, the psalmist is declaring that the enemies were running from us. They would see us coming and they ran away. And if it ended at verse 8, it would be enough to be a psalm. It would be enough to be a complete psalm and to end in a declaration of worship. But it's not the end. It's an abrupt change in the tone of the psalm to the next verse. The next verse is, but you have betrayed us. You have, you have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. If, if ever we have thought the Bible is sanitized from the emotions of real life or it's distant from where we live or it's, it's not proper to speak that way to God. It's not proper to be so honest before God and say how we are feeling in our prayers. The psalmist is exactly doing that. He is being absolutely honest to the core of his being. This is how we feel, God. You once were with us. Now we do not feel your presence. It seems that you have rejected us. It seems like our prayers are not being answered. It seems like you're not even hearing them. And when we go to battle, we are the ones running away now. And our enemies are getting spoil from us. And it's all been turned around. It's been turned upside down. And you, the faithful God, are not responding to our prayers. It's probably for most of us, or almost none of us, do we relate that to military conquests. But who of us has not prayed in, in the agony of our soul for someone who was ill or for someone who already has passed for not praying for them but praying about our grief for them and the loss and the longing that's in our soul to see them again and we can't a person that I love very much um, who, who lost uh, not lost who said goodbye to her 12-year-old daughter because she died suddenly. 
has shared with me that 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 comfort of knowing that others share that grief. A, a song that I shared with her, I said, have you ever heard of Andrew Peterson's song, The, the Silence of God, which kind of echoes the, mem- the uh, sentiments of this psalm? And she says, I've never heard of that. And later on, she said, Mark, thank you for sharing that with me. I listen to it often, and it still ministers to me. And though it's been years ago that, that her daughter went to heaven I know without any doubt she thinks of her every day and it's a wound that doesn't heal on earth it will not heal and in some sense there's not an answer and there's not going to be an answer not not one that makes it all better it will not be made better in this life and that is the reality of this broken world. And I, I'd love to deny that, or I, I'd, I'd love to be able to present a picture, rather, that's, that's perfect. And that, that says, if you follow God, you're not going to experience those things. But that is not true. And the psalmist honestly admits that. It is not true that we will have a life without those troubles. And it's not even true that we'll always be able to explain those troubles. Or that God always will give us an answer to our questions. The psalmist even goes on then in the next stanza to say, And it has happened while we were walking in obedience to you. It has not happened because in the directions of Moses in Deuteronomy, the warning was, if you walk away from me, if you turn your eyes to a false god, if you appeal to another god, you can be sure that you will suffer consequences for that. You will know the absence of the true God, and I will leave you to the gods that you have chosen, and you will serve wood and stone that you have made. That was the warning God gave them. Well, the psalmist says, but we haven't done that. Actually, we've been walking with you. So in that sense, this psalm might apply to someone like Joseph, who was sold by his brothers because he was testifying of of what God had told him. Or certainly, maybe he was arrogant in that, but... um, But certainly when he was in prison, he was in prison because he obeyed God. Or it could be a psalm that Job would have declared. Or it could be a psalm that the people in the time of Esther would have sung. Or it could be for us, the couple who longs to have a child. And they do not. Or it could be the parents who long to see their child come back from their wandering. And they watch like the prodigal, the, father's, the father of the prodigal son, they watch every day for a sign that that child is coming back. And their, their desires are righteous. Their longings are righteous and good. They have not betrayed God or bowed to a false God. And yet, so far, they don't 
they don't see an answer. They don't see a resolve. They don't see his presence. And they feel devalued. Just like the psalmist says, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not valued. And earlier he has said, you sold us for, for a low price. For pennies. We feel like we have no value. So, then we would hope that there's an answer. We would hope that there's a turn. There is a turn. There's another sentiment that's expressed. And it comes from the heart of the psalmist. He's, he's so honest in this. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Well, we know from Scripture the Lord never slumbers or sleeps. But the psalmist isn't expressing theology, he's expressing his heart. He's not expressing eternal truths about God and his character in this passage. He's expressing what his heart is crying out. Oh God, it feels like, it feels like you have sold us. It feels like you're sleeping. Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? <clears throat> the question shouts from our soul, why, oh God, why is this happening? Why are my requests not answered? Why are my pleas going unanswered? The picture I, I, that comes to mind of that is, is from... Uh, the days when my children were very, very young. I remember that um, one of my daughters, uh, before she was a year old, had croup. And if you know what croup is, it's a, it's a, a kind of a raspy cough that limits their breathing to the point where they, they can't even bring in a breath. And Dr. Steve could express it better, I'm sure, exactly, or Dr. Heather could. But that, that it is um, the, the inability to get enough air into your lungs. And it happened to our kids when they were very, very young, too young to know what was happening, but certainly aware that they were in distress. And so one night, it was so bad that Sandy said, you need to take this one to the doctor to take him to the emergency room. I went to the emergency room, and in the emergency room, they said, Dad, you get to hold her onto the, the x-ray table while we take a picture to see if she's got um, pneumonia. So she, I can't tell her what's happening. I can't explain it. I remember holding her against that ice-cold x-ray table, and her looking at me, and I, I, I can see her eyes now. Daddy, what are you doing? I'm crying because I need you, and you make it worse? I want you to make it better. This is not helping. I remember her being angry with me after that. Because she didn't know why I would do that. It, it's, a, it's a human example, and it's, it's flawed, of course, as an illustration, but is it possible that in our, the wisest of a human mind, 
The purposes of God are so far beyond us that we know we're in distress. But he is not able to communicate in our little mind what he's doing. That our capacity to understand is so limited that the pain can't be explained. It can't go away. It can't be made better in our timing and in our expectations because God has a purpose that is beyond that and we don't understand it and we will not understand it sometimes in this entire life. Now, for some of us and for many, when we get to that point, we, we want to walk away. We're, we're tempted to walk away. We're tempted to go and, and look for comfort somewhere else because we're not getting it from God. It's a, it's a time and age where there's a term called deconstruction. That's, it's a popular term where instead of building on the faith that we once had, we start to take it apart one piece at a time, start to question everything we know, everything we built on. And, and that exercise may in itself still not be bad unless we get to the point where we throw it all away. There's a, a, an author named Lena Abujamra. She's on a, a, a podcast or a, a, a radio program called the, the Single Christian, Today's Single Christian. But she's written a book called Fractured Faith. She tells of her own experience of going through that, getting to the point where she wondered where God was. Why is he not answering? The words of Psalm 44 were her life experience. And she said, Christians all over the world are asking difficult questions about their faith. Maybe that's you. You have questions that defy platitudes. They gnaw at your soul, and if they remain unanswered, these questions will lead you down the path to doubt. Then like a wound that's covered with a bandage without proper care, it starts to fester. Eventually, a dismantling of your belief begins to take place. And when everything we believe about God begins to crumble, the temptation is to walk away. The temptation is to stop believing. Or the very opposite takes place. So I don't want to leave us with that. I want to leave us with what Paul left us with. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, where does he make reference to the character of God? Where does he draw from in Romans chapter 8? Do you remember? We all probably know something about Romans chapter 8. It's a very encouraging chapter. We are more than conquerors. So many things, that death and life and angels and principalities, they will not be able to separate us from the love of Christ which is in Christ Jesus. The love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But what is his reference point for that? It's Psalm 44. He says, um, beginning with verse 31 in Romans 8, what then shall we say to things, these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. See, that's what our heart feels. That's what our heart cries. That's what we plead to God. That's the honest expression from our soul. And Paul's response, in light of the Savior who suffered for us and gave his life for us, the Father who gave his Son to be the payment for our sin, in light of a suffering Savior, all of that pales because he calls us forward to the redemption that came through his suffering. He didn't avoid it. He didn't skirt around the pain that the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 44. He drank up that cup. We are not the lambs to be slaughtered. He is the lamb that was slain. We are not rejected. God on the cross, he cried out, why have you forsaken me? He took the penalty, he took the, the brokenness of this world, took it all on himself so that we can say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you pray with me before we sing our final song? Heavenly Father, you have not you have not avoided the pain. You have not denied the pain. The psalmist has, has expressed the depth of our souls sometimes. And yet we cry, Lord, do not allow us to run from you when we are in pain. Pour out your mercy on us that we run to you to the only answer for our pain, to the only one who took our pain, the only one who says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, who, who values us above life itself. Lord, speak to the depths of our soul and call us to yourself by your grace and mercy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.